Let me just say that I finally understand why those JNU types go on for hours and hours in those shaky YouTube videos of protests under bridges and like smoggy college campuses. Hi, this is episode 5 of Clear Blue Skies. I really want it to be the Annihilation of Caste one. And it is, but kind of in a really atypical way. I was originally planning on titling this episode A Snake in the Garden, which is what he calls himself in the introduction to the Annihilation of Caste. Clearly, I've decided against this title in favor of another biblical reference that I bastardized a bit to suit my purposes. The Pariah Kite Lodges in the Branches of the Mustard Tree. This is a great segue into what I'm trying to rant about in this episode. The fact that I even have to specify that my title is a biblical reference, I'm definitely not going to explain it. If you don't understand, look it up yourself. And if you're upper caste Hindu, maybe you ruminate on your ignorance. Do I sound bitter to you? Yeah, I am. I feel a deep simmering hatred towards oppressor caste people, not to mention the systems that encourage and enable their worst impulses and habits. I stopped feeling bad and feeling this way and lo and behold, when I read Ambedkar's Rande Jindal and Gandhi, I was hugely vindicated. He said that those who accuse me of having been actuated by feelings of hatred forget two things. In the first place, this alleged hatred is not born of anything that can be called personal. If I am against them, it is because I want a settlement. In the second place, no one can hope to make any effective mark upon his time and bring the aid that is worth bringing to great principles and struggling causes if he's not strong in his love. I hate injustice, tyranny, pompousness, and humbug. I want to tell my critics that I regard my feelings of hatred as a real force. They are only the reflex of the love I bear for the causes I believe in and I am in no wise ashamed of it. I want a settlement. This Savarna independence I want a reckoning. Talking about my course, my university didn't do me a big favor by greenlighting it. In my opinion, they didn't understand the radical nature of my proposal and probably waved me in on grounds of multiculturalism or something. There weren't any Indians on the deciding committee, so probably no one had any idea of what I meant by anti-caste politics, Ambedkar as a radical or critique of the Indian nation-state project. All of which are phrases from my course proposal. Judging from the way that the topic of caste is barely even touched upon across faculties and disciplines in my university, it's clear that UBC has a caste problem. Am I accusing the Indian faculty at my alma mater of implicit casteism? 100% I am. My measly little one-time-only student-directed seminar with six students pales in comparison to the number of arts courses about India, about South Asia, all of which only have passing mentions of caste or no mentions whatsoever. We've had annual memorial lectures at the Center for South Asian Research from 2016 onwards, which again sounds really good, but just down the building where they are hosted is a stone bust of Dravindranath Tagore. Nothing about it suggests a safe space for Dalit or Bajan students or Adivasi students. Jaya 
the status quo of awful classes remains as forbidding and shallow as ever all the while some of the most privileged upper caste people prance around campus calling themselves people of color and marginalized and oppressed this invisibilization of reality is something i'm used to but oddly enough it's because it comes part and parcel of my christianity i didn't really understand my caste identity growing up but being an indian christian for people both in india and out it is an anomaly not to bring out an off told sob story but me and my sister have you know heard slurs and faced colorism and social isolation we only figured out what was maybe driving this like a year ago and it's so hard and tedious and weird to rethink your childhood your adolescence your relationships with people the clarity that comes with understanding your own marginalization well you know that phrase which is like knowledge is always power yeah that's not true and it's honestly why a lot of dalit parents hide it from their kids and i can't say i blame them for us it wasn't hidden or something we were ashamed of but the way i was brought up was that we were indian christians and we don't have caste we finished that sentence under our breaths in our heads within our house with caste is a hindu problem see the thing is information may or may not be power but ignorance is always vulnerability I was reading this essay that Suraj Yangde wrote Casts of Mind and it kind of articulates perfectly how I'm choosing to identify and why I'm disclosing my own identity. He describes how upper castes are so easy with taking positions of authority, being forthright, taking charge, correcting and talking over lower caste people. He reminds readers that it was early as 1919 that Ambedkar expressed his reservations over dominant castes representing the Dalit cause. two dominant caste progressive male leaders from western india could wanted to lead the untouchable cause and had invited ambedkar to join their platform in an attempt to garner legitimacy ambedkar chose to remain distant from such saviors unfortunately the world being the way it is i don't want the fruits of my family's hard work and yeah merit to be wrongly attributed to upper casteness i guess it's different for tamilian dalit christians because we can lay claim to the adi dravida christian identity I didn't even know this was a real thing until a few days ago actually. I debated adding this in but I guess it is part of experiencing Ambedkar. I said at the beginning of this project that I believed in Ambedkar's transformative power and and I think to not include the evidence of this transformation in my own sense of self wouldn't really be reflecting what this project is doing for me. I can't and I won't speak for anyone else but I will say that I've never felt more like a real son of this soil when I heard the words Adi Dravida Christian for the first time. Baba Saab's canonical journey led him to embrace Buddhism as the ultimate counter to Brahmanism. That he studied and ultimately discarded Christianity for not having adequate liberatory and metaphysical power is weird for me to take in because of the way that I've been raised. Christianity has been nothing but freedom. It's been posited as the faith, the ethos that brought education to my family, allowed so many generations to autonomy to choose whom they wanted to love, to explore their life's purpose. I've always been proud of my faith and I didn't even really register that I was a minority because I went to a Christian school, went to church on Sundays, hung out with friends from church in my free time. In a country where we're less than 3% of the total population, we still managed to have a religiously homogeneous social circle. 
let me correct myself. I didn't realize consciously that I was a minority, that we were being marginalized my whole life because that was just how I and the people around me have always experienced life. I didn't know that the perennially restless sense of identity and learnt mistrust of the government bureaucracy of police of the feeling overexposed when I reveal my surname was not a universal Indian experience. I've always felt that Indian Christian is an identity that floats above, which can be great sometimes, but it also means that you don't have roots or that most of the country doesn't perceive your roots. It's taken me four years and in other ways it's taken me my whole life to articulate a political position for Indian Christians that isn't just some stupid social media jargon about like representation. And the steel needed to build this hammer is the question of caste. In the annihilation of caste, Baba Saad calls caste the monster you meet at every turn. So it is with this ethos that I'm saying that I am sick of the constant invisibilization of Christians in India. It's a terrible kind of marginalization of stereotyping that is malicious and violent to its core because it is predicated on caste. What began as a liberatory exodus has been used to crash an ocean of dispossession loss right over our heads. My mother once told me when we were, I guess, having one of these like difficult conversations that she's always felt that we existed on the sufferance of the rest of the country. I never felt any such thing growing up because I grew up in a carefully blown bubble Suffice it to say that that has been burst. Finally, now they are even asking me to go to Bombay for further interrogation, which I am refusing to go because my age, I have certain ailments. There is the the epidemic which is ravaging the country, and the Jharkhand government itself has given directions that elderly people may not uh, travel or appear in public. Even these, I don't want to risk myself. And on the other hand, I'm ready for further interrogation if the if NIA would want it, but through video conference. This is something that I am communicating to them. And let us hope that some human sense will prevail. And if it does not, I am ready. And I hope all of us, all those who know me, and who are concerned about me will also be ready to face what is to be faced. I just want to find end by saying, what is happening to me is not something unique happening to me alone. It's the broader uh, process that is taking place all over the country. We are all aware how prominent intellectuals, lawyers, writers, poets, activists, student leaders, they are all put into jail just because they have expressed their dissent or raised questions about the ruling powers of India. So we are part of the process. As I am, I'm in a way, I am happy to be part of this process because I'm I'm not a silent spectator, but I'm part of it, part of the game, and ready to pay the price, whatever be it. Thank you for your attention. How is this not religious persecution? God, the levels of this depravity, this act of murder by the killing Hindu state is shocking as are the confluence of analysis that removed the Christian angle while eulogizing and pontificating about his murder, about the entire rotten case. 
when you say that his death is a tragedy for the whole nation, a black mark upon the whole nation, what I want to know is what nation? My community is not complicit in his institutional murder. To even be complicit, we would have to be part of the institution in the first place. And what Christine can claim that? Our patriotism, our beliefs, our belonging are all questioned and othered and ignored every day. So how are we all now suddenly in this instance all part of one nation? I really despise upper caste atheists, even those who are my friends, even those who reject theism I suppose as a part of their quest towards divesting from their caste privilege. Every time I offhandedly bring up faith or religion or Christianity, there's this dismissive attitude that they talk to me with. They're so good, so well trained in civility though that you end up feeling put down slightly but not really sure why. If I'm talking in capital letters about being a Christian as a minority, that's the only time that they can take talk of God seriously and even that it is borderline objectifying like, oh wow, look at my Dalit Christian friend. Oh wow, look at me, I'm such a rebel being friends with her. I honestly find it really funny. I mean, I still have male friends and white friends, so what are a few Brahmins? The thing is, I get why they're so resistant towards this. For me, there's not really much internal conflict between having a faith and having a political perspective. In fact, they both inform one another quite symbiotically. I am whole and sane in my mind. There is something rotten in their religion. So how could they even understand a spirituality that betters you, that mandates equality, that pursues good? What you mean is you are complicit and you make up the nation. In the Annihilation of Caste, Ambedkar asks Savarnas, Are you fit for political power even though you do not allow a large class of your own countrymen like the untouchables to use public schools? Are you fit for political power even though you do not allow them the use of public wells? Are you fit for political power even though you do not allow them the use of public streets? Are you fit for political power even though you do not allow them to wear what apparel or ornaments they like? Are you fit for political power even though you do not allow them to eat any food that they like? I can ask a string of such questions, but this will suffice. And and I, I think it's important to say, so the Society of Jesus is not saying release Father Stan and forget about this. We're saying release Father Stan on humanitarian grounds. This is an 83-year-old man, suffers Parkinson's disease, lumbar spondylosis, uh, has had operations for hernia. Since his arrest, he's now lost his hearing, we hear as well, um, in prison. Uh, you know, this is a man who was denied his straw and sipper cup even. Um, and so it seems like democracy is not being really um, enacted and shown in its best light, is it, Cedric? Jairaj S.J. is the director of the Jesuit Social Justice and Ecology Secretariat in Rome and a friend of Father Stan. In an interview with a channel called The Jesuit Review in April of this year, he spoke about the circumstances of Father Stan's case. Yes, um, very true. If we go to what is happening in India, I love my country very much. I believe in the democratic traditions, um, which um, which was born in our country in 1947. We have a constitution um, in a few days from now on April 14th. We celebrate the birth anniversary of Dr. Ambedkar, who was the father of the Constituent Assembly. And we have justice, liberty, equality, and fraternity at the heart of our constitution. We are a great democracy in which we took great pride that 
the our pluralism of religion of culture of language of food of ethos of everything possible was our greatness we were one country one nation from 1947 onwards 15th of august but suddenly many of us see a lot of things crumbling we have the rise of authoritarianism our universal apostolic preferences and stan has been uh, taking a stand for the excluded he has been within the framework of the democratic traditions and the constitutional rights of our nation the question is why is he being incarcerated today it's a big question and we call upon the nation to answer this so stan drinks from these waters right a kind of india uh, and india fighting for peace satyagraha but he's also a jesuit uh, and within our own jesuit tradition there is a fight for justice there is a fight for um you know to to abandon social inequities in, in in our societies so before we go i i just want to touch again on father swami's case because there's something that we haven't really made clear i think the national investigation agency arrested and held him and he is being held at the moment the accuser and uh, also the RB, the person who does the legal procedures and the judge is the same or uh, under the UAPA act it is very clear what what is going on here i hope that it will be clear to our audience and we hope that in future we will have a better conversation a more lively conversation perhaps uh, in the company of father swami thank you that would be that will be a good dream for all of us it will be a i mean resurrection moment for all of us on the 20th january of this year kashmiri poet and researcher omar bhat posted a draft he had written about shajil imam the muslim scholar and activist who is currently facing charges of sedition shajil imam is your indisputable imam he wrote show him your support rally behind him could you have asked for a more honest muslim representative in these troubled times perhaps not it has come as a blessing for you ask yourself what could fighting for the constitution mean to a muslim in india who has been discriminated again since long in a systematic manner to the point where he is totally lost his assertive agency to represent himself against a law that threatens his existence he is unabashedly and unapologetically muslim he doesn't come with the terms and conditions set by the secularist liberal forces who work as the damage control arm of the state he remembers sachin pora he remembers musafir nagar he remembers najib his memory instills fear in the marrow of the hindutva state i'm talking about this because shajil imam is still imprisoned and also because we need to claim our radical leaders as christians we need to assert ourselves politically in exactly the same way that omar described and that shajil embodied inko pata hai ki jantar mantar pe jao neta ko inko gandhi banna hai humko nahi banna hai bilkul nahi banna hai kanoon ke khilaf kaam kar raha hai samajh lijiye humko koi sakrium nahi badhiya hai ये दिमाग से निकाल दीजिए इनसिक्योरिटी ये इनसिक्योरिटी कॉम्प्लेक्स ये एहसास कमतरी हमें उनका अप्रूवल चाहिए अरे उनके अप्रूवल का नतीजा देख रहे हो तुम लोग क्या हुआ है सत्तर साल में दिख रहा है अप्रूवल है और एक और चीज मैं ऐड कर दू जो तो आजकल फैशिज्म फैशिज्म के बारे लग रहे हैं याद रखिएगा दस्तूर शुरू से फैशिज्म की इजाजत देता है चाहे प्रोटेक्शन हो प्रेसिडेंट रूल हो चुनाव का तरीका हो हिंदू का डेफिनेशन हो 
कॉन्स्टिट्यूशन फैशिस्ट है बिल्कुल आप इसका सहारा लें कोर्ट में केस में हर जगह लें लेकिन ये आपका ये आपकी आखिरी उम्मीद हो ही नहीं सकता क्योंकि इसने बारह आपको फेल किया है एक बार फेल किया भाई नेहरू ने ही दिखा दिया कॉन्स्टिट्यूशन में जवान अब्दुल्ला को अरेस्ट किया केरला में सरकार गिराई मणिपुर पर हमला किया Here's what I know and see about the Hindu worldview. It is mean and driven by malice, and both of these are direct quotations from Ambedkar in Who Are the Shudras. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to describe how the meek and non-violent-looking Hindu can be violent when anybody attacks his sacred books. For I know very well, he says, that they are a base crew who, professing to defend their religion, have made religion a matter of trade. They are more selfish than any other set of beings in the world, and are and are prostituting their intelligence to support the vested interests of their class. So don't combat, commie bros. It's a matter of no small surprise that when the mad dogs of orthodoxy are let loose against a person who has the courage to raise his voice against the so-called sacred books of the Hindus. Eminent Hindus occupying lofty places, claiming themselves to be highly educated and who could be expected to have no interest and have a free and open mind, become partisans and join the outcry. Even Hindu judges of high courts do not hesitate to join their kind. They go further. They not only lead the howl against him, but even join the hunt. So you know, I know I promised humor. So while reading this text. Which genuinely cracked me up was Ambedkar's inclusion of Professor Max Muller's comments about the Hindu texts. Right now, Max Muller centers across major Indian cities are literally the center of pretentious Brahmin faux intellectualizing. Director and film critic uh, Rajesh Rajamani actually made a dig at this in his hilarious short film, The Discreet Charm of the Swarnas. To think that the man himself was cussing Brahmins out—it does not get any better than that. He says that the Brahmanas, judged by themselves as literary productions, they are most disappointing. No one would have supposed that at so early a period in so primitive a state of society that there could have risen up a literature for which pedantry and downright absurdity can hardly be matched anywhere. There is no lack of striking thoughts, of bold expressions, of sound reasoning, and curious traditions in these collections. The general character of these works is marked by a shallow and insipid grandiloquence, by priestly conceit. An antiquarian pedantry. It is most important to the historian that he should know how soon the fresh and healthy growth of a nation can be blighted by priestcraft and superstition. All these speculations are really the twaddles of idiots and ravings of madmen, and as such, they are of no use to the student of history who is in search of a natural explanation of a human problem. Now, when I tell you, it does not get better than this. Now, it's entirely coincidental, perhaps, that a piece of literature that is as old as three thousand five hundred years. Has suddenly been resurrected in Tamil Nadu when elections in the state are just a few months away. Comments made by VCK Chief and Lok Sabha MP Thirumalavalan about the description of Hindu women, as mentioned in the Manuspriti, have caused a major political storm. His comments have triggered protests and counter-protests, with the BJP asking, "Why is there this deliberate attempt to provoke? Why is the target only one religion?" talking about a book which has no relevance in the present i want to start by asking mr thiru malavalvan uh, what is the point of raising this issue at this time 
what is the relevance unless it is to hurt religious feelings actually september 27th i have attended a webinar organized by european tamils i spoke about periyar and indian politics specifically about periyar and feminism so i quoted from manasmriti how women are treated dr vr ambedkar also fought against manasmriti basically it is root cause of all kinds of discriminations for the past 3 decades i am in public life for dalit empowerment women okay. empowerment on all marginalized sections so whenever possible wherever possible i used to talk about manasmriti because manasmriti made all this kind of social structure in our nation that's what we are uh talking about manasmriti not only this time for the past 3 decades okay. i'm doing like this um i'm just going to point out the horrible north indian butchering of anna toll's name and not mention the not to mention the weird phrasing and the hugely like leading question in who are the shudras in uh, the riddles of hinduism ambedkar said that respect and reverence for the sacred language of the hind for the sacred literature of the hindus is natural to a brahmin scholar but is quite unnatural in a non brahmin scholar and i'm not a scholar but i'm definitely not brahmin and i got to do what comes naturally to me man i was reading this opinion piece on the wire a couple years ago and i've not been able to find it since so yeah apologies for not crediting the writer this piece basically postulates that the hindutva the hindu state was waging war on the elderly this ties into their valorization of violence their faith of latis rayan rods and lighting bhajan bodies on fire their prime minister with his 56 inch chest with military deployments in kashmir i mean even as the second wave of covid still not over still only leading to more tragedies rages and keeps feeding that the spectacle of their death cult continues meanwhile just this april my mother started keeping a list and still keeps it of all the people she knows who will not die people who were murdered by state negligence mismanagement and cruelty this criminal uncaring regime that is plowing through the most vulnerable with absolute impunity and then the way the headlines took on a sh- an air of shakespearean tragic comedy stories of dalit crematorium workers suffering dying keeping the pyres burning while headlines of brahmin priests refusing to do funeral rites or charging exorbitant rates for them ran parallel in the news cycle how has all this already been forgotten i can't sleep for grief for rage for desperate powerlessness attending zoom funerals watching the people i love age before my very eyes maybe it's my youth but i'm getting less sad and i'm getting angrier every day unless we forget the main big event that led to the second wave was the kumela what a disgusting spectacle carnival of selfishness electoral pageantry and barbarism why the hell does my people and by which i mean both christians and bahujan and dalits the most vulnerable the people why did all these variants in this proliferate think about the loss so many elders dead on ventilators and of those from the marginalized minority communities think of the death and the loss of cultural history of leadership that has been taken away how do we even begin to quantify this loss and the arrogance the sheer inhumanity of the government to improve to imprison the bk 16 most of whom who are old because such is santana dharma what happens is meant to happen so what's the need for innovation for ingenuity for community care they see death as weakness and suffering as an ordained penance 
not something to be alleviated. Nothing changes. We rot and fungus develops and we die. And that is the nature of Hindu life. It is a carnival of death and destruction. Ambedkar, God, everything he writes seems prophetic, even though it's largely because that the status quo is hugely unchanged from his times to now. In The Annihilation of Caste, he says that it seems to me that the question is not whether a community lives or dies, but the question is on what plane does it live. There are different modes of survival, but not all are equally honourable. For the individual as well as for the society, there is a gulf between merely living and living worthily. To fight in battle and to live in glory is one mode. To beat a retreat, to surrender and to live the life of a captive is also a mode of survival. It is useless for a Hindu to take comfort in the fact that he and his people have survived. What he must consider is what the quality is of their survival. If he does that, I am sure he will cease to take pride in the mere fact of survival. A Hindu's life has been a life of continuous defeat. And what appears to him to be life everlasting is not living everlastingly, but it is really a life which is perishing everlastingly. It is a mode of survival of which every right-minded Hindu who is not afraid to own up to the truth will feel ashamed. And this is why they are so violently against conversions. And this is why Muslims and Christian Dalit cannot avail of the remedies available to scheduled caste. Then they basically lose affirmative action, what few victories have been eked out. Because they've left, they've had the audacity to aspire to equality, to want a better life. In my 6th grade NCRD textbook edited by a boy again Zayadav, the left liberal Kurta Jola wedding extraordinaire, we were taught the six fundamental rights we have as Indians. Religious freedom is one of them. The provision of religious freedom to all citizens and this is what ensures a secular state in India. Article 25 guarantees all persons the freedom of consciousness and right to preach, practice and propagate any religion of their choice. The right to propagate, however, does not include the right to convert another individual since it would amount to an infringement of the other's right to freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience. What a statement. It's not that Christians globally have an excellent track record of not forcefully converting people, but I think that's more the whiteness, perhaps even the Aryanness in them. Hindu conversion, or rather conversion to Hinduism, is the co-option of Adivasi spirituality, gods, animism, and kidnapping, rape, and sex trafficking. But Christians, of course, must not infringe people's freedom of conscience. If Dalits convert to Christianity or Islam, they cannot avail of their rights with the state. If reservation is a contract we have with the state, how dare they implicitly denote terms that mandate conformity to the Hindu Rashtra project? How is this anything other than being punished for leaving the Hindu fold? It's not even really leaving the Hindu fold. It's daring to have self-respect. It's daring to want food and education and aspire to equality. Not in schools or wealth or privileges, just in state of mind. How do we in any shape or form have religious freedom if the most vulnerable of us are being penalized for exercising our own freedom of conscience? Listen, of course I have grievances with the church, both in terms of the churches I grew up in and just as like a global concept of organized religion. There are things and people and ideas I wholeheartedly disagree with and repudiate. And honestly, in his paper, Christianizing the Untouchables, Ambedkar lays all of them down neatly. There's not a single point that I can dismiss or that I really disagree with. As usual, he just lays out thoughts and ideas I've had my whole life, but gives me a vocabulary with which to articulate them. 
the political articulation of Indian Christians of Dalits to be rooted in reality so that we don't succumb to useless neoliberal performative politics. We need to come into our own in the national landscape as well as in regional politics. But the national is essential because only then can the extent of the threat be understood and conceived of. It's really important that we don't believe in the Hindus' rights-framing devices. They say that their only enemy, their only target are Muslims. It's dangerous because it masks and blurs the Pasmada and Dalit Christian cause and the way that the most rampant, violent effects of Hinduism are visited upon their bodies. We can't let the right and the liberals tell us that it is econ- economic class. It is not. It is cast down to its roots. And hitting back with, oh, there are Brahmin Christians? Of course there are Brahmin Christians. There are Brahmins everywhere. And that's why it's essential that we, as religious minorities and as people from these pressed castes, we have to create our own modes of being and our own articulations. We cannot depend on upper castes, whatever religion they profess, to truly represent our interests, to understand our material realities. We cannot blindly accept their leadership, either in spirituality or in power, because they fall prey so easily to respectability politics, to civility, to cooperating. The pogrom of 2020 in my city devastated the Muslim communities in Northeast Delhi. But even Dalits were targeted. दिल्ली की हिंसा की शुरुआत यहीं से हुई थी जब 22 फरवरी यानी शनिवार की रात साढ़े दस बजे नागरिकता कानून के विरोध में अगले दिन यहां हिंदुवादी संगठनों के लोग प्रदर्शन करने के लिए पहुंच गए और उसी वक्त कपिल मिश्रा भी पहुंचे थे लेकिन कपिल मिश्रा से अलग कुछ लोग और पहुंचे थे और उनका नेतृत्व कर रही थी ये महिला ये अपना नाम रागनी तिवारी इस महिला ने यहाँ ऐसी फेसबुक लाइव किया जय श्री राम की धरती की बेटी रागनी तिवारी लोग मुझे जान की बहन कहते हैं अभी कुछ दिन से अरे मीमटो अरे सुवर के बीजो तुम लोगों ने इतनी दम होगी तुम भारतीय नारी को छुएगा काट के रख दी जाएगी इतना डर गया अभी तुम्हें नहीं पता असुरो सुवरो भीमटो दोबारा महाभारत खून आज भी लाल है सिर्फ सारी छूने ऐसी और तुम लोग की क्या औकात है भारतीय नारी और मीमटे भीमटे तुम लोग किसी पे अंगुली उठाओगे तुम लोग हमेशा मंदिर पर और महिला पर पीछे से वार किए हो जागो तो एक बार हिंदू जागो तो आज हिंदू एकजुट हो गया है मीमटो भीमटो जय श्री राम भाइयों जय भारत माता वाई आर मुस्लिम एंड क्रिस्टियन इन सिख सो हेटेड इट्स रिलीजियस बट इट्स ऑल्सो कास्ट The history of our faiths in the subcontinent are histories of exodus, of walking towards liberation, fraternity, real fraternity with the essential elements of kinship and equality. They have entirely and in full measure legally co-opted Adivasi spirituality. They co-opt Buddhism. They other and villainize Muslims and Sikhs, and they completely erase Christians. This is all rooted in caste. Picking up some breaking inputs, Pune City Police late on Tuesday has registered an offence against XAMU student Sharjil Usmani for the alleged provocative speech delivered by him at Elgar Parisha 2021, which was held in the city on 30th of January that year. Usmani has. been booked on charges of promoting enmity between different groups following a complaint filed by a leader of the BJP's youth wing and i say this openly that i don't trust indian judiciary agar sarkar ke mukbir yahan baithe hain to unke liye dobara bol raha hu i don't trust indian judiciary aapko state ki zimmedari hai ki state ke organ ke upar bharosa citizens kare agar citizens bharosa karna chhod de to state ki zimmedari hai wo maafi mange wo aage badh kar aaye pehal kare ki ha humse galti hui hai hum galti tasleem karte hain aage se isi baat lekin हमारे यहाँ इन सभी फैसलों को सेलिब्रेट किया जाता है पुलिस के बारे में एक मिसाल 
उत्तर प्रदेश से मैं आता हूँ वहां का मुख्यमंत्री बोलता है कि हम इनकाउंटर करेंगे इनकाउंटर एक मिसहैप होता है कि सामने से कोई आ गया गोली चला दी तो पुलिस को भी बदले में गोली चलाना हमारा चीफ मिनिस्टर बोल रहा है कि हम इनकाउंटर करेंगे और अपनी हुकूमत में आने के बाद अगले एक साल तक डेली उन्नीस लोगों को मारा सभी मुसलमान या दलित और ये इनकाउंटर करने वाली पुलिस सी के प्रोटेस्टर्स पे उत्तर प्रदेश में सीने पे गोली चला कोई मुझे समझाए की मैं कैसे भरोसा करूँ उस पुलिस पे आई डोंट ट्रस्ट इंडियन पुलिस दिल्ली पुलिस लठ बजाओ हम तुम्हारे साथ है मोटे मोटे लठ बजाओ हम तुम्हारे साथ है लंबे लंबे लठ बजाओ हम तुम्हारे साथ है जरूरत पड़ी तो हमें बुलाओ हम तुम्हारे साथ है लेजिस्लेटिव में जो बैठे जो हमारे लिए कानून बना रहे हैं इस तरह का जेनोसाइडल बिल जो लेकर आते हैं फार्म बिल लेकर आ रहे हैं इस पे तो कम से कम हम सबकी आम राय है दैट वी डोंट ट्रस्ट द पीपल सिटिंग इन पार्लियामेंट हमको उनपे भी भरोसा नहीं आई जस्ट वॉन्ट टू मेक इट नोटेड दैट आई एम सेंग दैट आई डोंट ट्रस्ट द एग्जीक्यूटिव एज वेल इन टोटल आई डोंट ट्रस्ट द इंडियन स्टेट टूडे और इसमें कोई मेरी कमी नहीं है क्योंकि आकर बोले कि तुम एंटी नेशनल हो तुमको स्टेट पे भरोसा नहीं है मेरी जिम्मेदारी नहीं है भरोसा जताना या भरोसा करना स्टेट की जिम्मेदारी है आई सर वो आई वॉज फीलिंग विद डिग्निटी एंड पब्लिक The state is behaving in such a way that they can get anyone into trouble whenever they feel like. There are two options: either we let them bully us or we fight back. I don't want to let them bully me. You know, the VCK is an interesting party because what we've seen in Tamil Nadu also is the strengthening of caste-based parties. You've got the PMK, which is an ally of the AIDMK with its one-year vote bank, and you are seen to have your Dalit vote bank. But are you saying that you will? unlike in the north where a bsp can aspire for power on its own because of a much larger dalit population in tamil nadu you have no option but to tie up with one of the two major dravida parties so we are for social justice we are not bothering about the electoral politics but we are bothering about social justice but social justice through vote bank politics yeah through that is very important here vck has very important role to organize all democratic forces not only dalits all democratic forces so we are working together with dmk congress and left parties this election is war between secularism and communalism sir we are against communalism BJP is targeting Tamil Nadu to develop their party here with absence of Dr Kalinger and Jayalalitha but definitely i can say they can't get a single seat in forthcoming elections because Tamil Nadu people they know very well about BJP communal politics Tamil Nadu people will never allow communal politics in peninsular not only in tamil nadu how do you see the role of parties like vck we are not for caste we are anti caste annihilation of caste is our main motto we are not provoking caste sentiments or religious sentiments we are working on the basis of dr ambedkar ideology and periyarism vck is an inevitable political force in tamil nadu 
I really appreciate and I really note that about Ambedkar's kind of like the Christian imagery, the biblical references that he uses, not just in works like Christianizing the Untouchables, but just throughout his writing. He talks about conversion. He says it means conversion, but if you do not like the word, I will say it means a new life. Where a new life cannot enter a body that is dead. New life can only enter a new body. The old body must die before a new body can come into existence and a new life can enter into it. To put it simply, the old must cease to be operative before the new can begin to enliven, to live and to pulsate. One thing I can say this, I am deeply interested in the Indian Christians because a large majority of them are drawn from the entire classes. My comments are those of a friend. They are not the strictures of an adversary. I have drawn attention to their weaknesses because I want them to be strong and I want them to be strong because I see great dangers for them ahead. They have to reckon with the scarcely veiled hostility of Mr. Gandhi to Christianity taking its roots in the Indian social structure. But they also have to reckon with militant Hinduism masquerading as Indian nationalism. What this militant Hinduism will do to Christians and Christianity can be seen with what Pandit Vindavan varies recently. If the newspaper reports are true, a crowd of mild Hinduism went quietly and burnt down the mission buildings in Vrindavan and warned the missionary that if he rebuilt it, they would come and burn it down again. This may be the solitary instance of misguided patriots or this might be just a piece of what the Hindus are planning to get rid of Christians in Christianity. If this is a shadow of events to come, then Indian Christians must be prepared to meet them. How can they do that except by removing the weaknesses with which I have referred to? Let all Indian Christians ponder. Sister Jyoti Bahen Urumpul of the Sisters of the Charity of Nazareth um, who is a former student and friend of Father Stan, wrote an essay about him a week after his demise where she wrote out excerpts from, the talk, from a talk that Father Stan gave at an annual convention for the Forum of Justice and Peace in Ranchi in 2019. He said that, I warned the institutions of the church that they would increasingly become millstones around the neck of the church. I request the church establishments to deinstitutionalize themselves open themselves to people's movements and offer them logistical support in their actions. He appealed to us to evolve a spirituality based on the Jesus of Nazareth and not on the Jesus of the Christians. The historical Jesus of Nazareth was a revolutionary, whereas the Jesus of the Christians has been deified and imprisoned inside our churches and institutions. I want us to be angry. So did Father Stan. Of course, we are fractured and divided and dispersed. But it doesn't mean that another world is impossible. I grew up in a street in Tamil Nadu called Church Colony. And I learned only a couple of months ago that the word Kowal meant temple. My whole life, I thought it meant church.